Well, good evening, church. Welcome again to our midweek devotional refresh. Close-ups of Jesus through the lens of Mark's gospel. My plan, at least so far, my plan is, because people probably will be, you know, traveling a little bit less, my thinking is that we'll probably keep this going right through uh, the summer months on Wednesday night. So continue to join us, be devoted to the Word. The, the, the mentality behind this is, looking at Jesus through the lens of Mark's gospel, the idea behind it comes from Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, where he talks about beholding the glory of the Lord. And then he says, we're, we're being transformed. In beholding the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So there's this, you don't, you don't sense it just in one study or one reading, but over time, there's this incremental transformation that happens, and it comes from beholding the glory of Jesus. So I thought, what a great theme. So that's what we're doing uh, all through the summer, close-ups of Jesus through the lens of Mark's gospel. This is part three. Here's the first point. Hope you have a Bible with you. I want you to just wonder all over again at the uh, grace and power of Jesus. You see it in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Mark says this, He, that's Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Now, we don't know at this point, why did Jesus pick this guy? He just sees, he sees him sitting there, follow me. And he, that's Matthew, rose and followed Jesus, 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, they're obviously saying this reasonably out loud because it says, and when Jesus heard it, so it's not just their thoughts, when he heard their words, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, of course there aren't any righteous, but people who perceive themselves as righteous. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so it, it seems just so offhand. Jesus is walking, it says he passes by, that's the word Mark uses, and he, and he sees Matthew sitting there and he just says, follow me. And Matthew does. And you got to wonder, why Matthew? Why does Jesus pick Matthew? And it ties in with the uh, correction he's going to give to the religious leaders about, about sinners needing a savior and the sick needing a physician. See, Matthew was, in all likelihood, most historians feel Matthew was probably uh, a hated man because while he was Jewish, he worked for the Roman oppressors. 
He worked with the tyranny of the Roman government as a tax collector. And frequently, we're not given all this background, but we know frequently these tax collectors were, were crooks because their work was, as long as Rome got its money, their work was largely unsupervised. And so the tendency frequently was for people like Matthew to collect more than they should have been collecting pay Rome, and pocket the difference. So they would be skimming money off the top. And as Jewish people became aware of this, they viewed these people as traitors. Now, this is the man Jesus chooses. Matthew, you follow me. And so, is this the kind of guy we would think qualified? What's Jesus doing? What's the lesson here? And the obvious point is, here's here's this evangelist, probably perhaps the first gospel written, and he shows Jesus choosing someone like this. So Mark wants all of us to realize that the call of Jesus The first call of Jesus is always a call of grace. It isn't to people who qualify. It isn't for people who look worthy. And so this most unworthy looking person is chosen by Jesus. And I, Don Horbin, am supposed to learn from that. It means means that um, down comes before up. And that's a good thing. It means that nobody is beyond the reach of Christ's call and Christ's love and Christ's help and Christ's grace. It means means there's no situation that's hopeless. That's what we're supposed to see. And And it isn't just Jesus who deals with it. You'll see Paul kind of saying the same thing in different words. Paul, he writes to the church at Corinth and he deals with, he deals with the twin problems of Pride for people who feel they're doing well and despair for people who feel unworthy. He deals with them both in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. Let me just read those words. For consider your calling. So Paul wants them to think. Notice, consider the verb. He wants them thinking about this. Consider your calling, not many of you who were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. Okay, why? Why does God start things this way? 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. There's this lowering. Why does he do this? 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life. Jesus talked about a branch abiding in the vine. He is the source of your life in Jesus Christ, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, As it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it's the same idea 
that Mark portrays Jesus calling Matthew. The idea behind it is God's plan was never to make me look good. God's plan in redemption is always, the gospel always makes God look good. It, it highlights his mercy, beholding the glory of the Lord. We are transformed from one degree of glory to another. That's why someone like Matthew, surprisingly, Mark says, Jesus wants Matthew following him. Notice point number two, how Jesus describes the nature of his mission. I think this is so important. It's in 2.17. We already read these words. And when Jesus heard it, so he hears them, why, why with publicans and sinners? Why is he eating with these people? When Jesus heard it, 2.17, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And so, okay, is Jesus talking about physical illness here? No. He goes on to clarify, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So, so there's a switch. He starts talking about sickness, but by the time he gets to the end of that verse, Jesus makes it clear that, that he's not just saying people have physical problems and he came to make their lives a bit better. He identifies clearly the kind of sickness he's talking about as sin. So it's not like Jesus is approving of the actions, but he starts with people where they are in their sin. A lot of experts, a lot of people now even in the church are trying to define the nature of Christ's life and work when really we don't have to guess. The, the heart of it is described here. I, I, came, I came for sinners. I came for sinners. I came for people, not the righteous, and there aren't any righteous people, but people who think they're righteous, people who think they're good enough. I can't help those people. But people who have an understanding of their sinfulness, there, that's why I came. That's why I came. So Jesus immediately, he separates himself from a host of other options, tags that people hang on his mission, his calling. He didn't come just to be a moral teacher. He didn't come just to bring a, a, a code of ethics that would be superior to other moral teachers. He didn't come to bring some kind of philosophy into our already crowded mental systems. He didn't come just to introduce another religion. He defines people as desperately sick, not, not misinformed, not just lacking a better education, not just needing some moral refinement. There's a, there's a sin problem. It's a sin problem. Okay, point number three. The first task of those who would follow Jesus. It's in that same verse in 2.17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but, but sinners. And Jesus doesn't mean there, he doesn't just identify with sinners in the sense of endorsing their sin. Jesus was just, you know, wanted everybody to be happy, and so he would just do whatever they were doing. It isn't that. It wasn't endorsing their sin, but showing that he would, he would start with people right where they are. They didn't have to clean up first and then come to Jesus. He came for sinners. How does this relate to, you know, when you look at Mark 
Jesus comes and says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So, so to what are we first called? Well, it's this idea of repentance, repentance of sin. And it, and it explains why the scribes and the Pharisees, they just weren't able to come to terms with Jesus. They're constantly battling Jesus all through Mark's gospel. And you start to see why. But this time, look at Matthew. Matthew 3, 7 to 12. This is John the Baptist now. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. Well, that won't win you many... Uh, Many points for good PR. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. See, we're, we're, we're okay. We're the righteous. We have Abraham as our father. John says, for I tell you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. They're saying, oh, no, 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 we don't need that. We have Abraham. We don't need to repent. That's the problem here. 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He's speaking of Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Now, why did I read that? He came to call, not the righteous, but sinners. These people, the scribes, the Pharisees, were Abraham's descendants. They think they're righteous. They think they're righteous. And, and so you start to see why people have a hard time with Jesus. Why people outside of the knowledge of Christ as coming for sinners, they always use religion to their own undoing. They still do. Any religious system that lifts up human effort and pedigree and heredity, that lifts that up while minimizing just the reception of sheer grace that Jesus shows to Matthew in all of his unworthiness, any system that ignores that is, is just doomed to destruction. That's why we need those tough verses there. Okay, point number four. Now you have the teaching of Jesus on fasting. Some interesting words in Mark 2, 18 to 21. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So it was a common practice. People came and said to him, to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. And then these words, 
No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Now, we have a pretty good picture at the way in which the Pharisees like to fast. That text already said that John's disciples and, and the Pharisees were fasting. Matthew tells us how the Pharisees were fasting. And he puts it in Matthew 6, 16 to 18. Jesus is correcting his disciples. His disciples see the Pharisees fasting. And Jesus doesn't want them doing it the way the Pharisees are doing it. And so Jesus says, and when you fast, isn't this interesting? Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. That's Jesus' word for the Pharisees. Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. The reward is people look at them and think, wow, fasting. That's all they get. 17, but when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. My, this is a personal opinion. My personal opinion is I'm not crazy about churches where you, you put up a big, a big uh, sign-up thing on the Internet and people say, I'm going to fast from Thursday 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock and I'm going to fast from... I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying I have a hard time with it because of Jesus' words here. So we, we see the Pharisees. They, they, they try to appear hard done by, a little bit gloomy. We, we need to constantly watch against that human, that fallen human tendency to make some kind of demonstration of piety, some kind of outward show of, of piety. So, so to Jesus, he said he'd be gone, they would have needs, they would fast, but fasting wasn't a dry, mechanical kind of thing. They, they had to have an understanding of the times, the seasons in the prayer life. There would be a time, verse 20, for fasting. Right now, he said, they, they have the bridegroom with them. Five, last point. I love these words on the radical nature of Christ's new life. It's in 21 and 22 of Mark 2. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, like a, like a patch, that new material on old. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old. And a worse tear is made. And then same idea in a different picture, 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. Both are destroyed. That's the point. 
New wine is for fresh wineskins. So the idea that clearly, the idea is when, when Jesus comes to a person like Matthew, when Jesus comes to a person like Don Horbin, you can't combine the old life with the new. This is a beautiful balancing here. So yeah, he comes to someone like Matthew in all of his sin and all of his crookedness and all of his dishonesty, if that's, if that's in fact the way his tax collecting was done. Jesus will start with him where he is, but you can't just tack on the life of Christ like a patch on an old life. He starts with us where we are, but the life can't come be, the new can't com- be combined with the old. Everything becomes new. Everything comes under the scope of repentance and a hunger for Christ and his glory. Jesus doesn't mix with any other religious system. When he comes, it's new life, and the life has to permeate. Sure, it takes time. Sure, he starts with us where we are. But the new life has to permeate everything about us. And so you you just start to see the scope of transformation. Again, back to Paul's words where he says, beholding the glory of our Lord, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. It just, the transformation just keeps happening. There's no part of the life that I leave uh, unsurrendered to his lordship. No part that remains unrenewed by a spiritual mind. The transformation can be greater than any of us imagine. And John says it will come right up to the time when Jesus comes again and we will finally be like him because we will see him as he is. Let's pray. We love these simple snapshots. They're not complicated. Just, it's like just walking with Jesus through Mark's gospel. Seeing he said this, he said this, he did that, he did that. And, and your word says there's incredible power. We don't want our old, our old life pattern shaping the way we think. We want the spirit of Christ increasingly causing us to reimagine what life in Christ is all about. And so just deepen that work in all of our hearts, I pray. While we can't be together, unite our hearts in devotion to your word at the glory of Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. Sunday morning, keeping your joy, the heartfelt theology of an isolated prisoner. And I want to talk to you about loving one another with the affection of Christ. He uses that phrase, and I want to look at what that means. Loving one another with the affection of Christ. Sunday at 10 a.m. And then Sunday night, we're going to be back in the book of Jonah, when life seems to swallow you whole. Does that feel like where you are right now? Jonah can help. We'll study it together. God bless the church. Stay devoted to the word and love one another.